Hello, and welcome to episode 73 of Kaiju Curry House. This is your host, Joe, and I am joined by our regular host, Paul. Tonight, we've got a special treat for you. We've got the director-producer of Eight Versus Monster, Mr. Daniel Lesko, and he is also the owner of Keystone Films, which co-produced the film. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing really well. It's awesome to be on this show. I love what you guys are doing. Oh, thanks. Thanks a million. Well, we have uh, primed Daniel for what we normally do at the beginning of every episode. What have Kaiju been up to? And I'm going to go ahead and start off by asking you, Daniel, what have Kaiju been up to? Okay, so well, I've, been, I've been up to making this uh, Eight Verse Monster movie, which has been a bunch of fun. I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. We made it for ridiculous uh, constraints but we are thrilled with, with what came out and the energy that's in the movie and love watching these monsters clash. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited. I've also just this last week watched the, um, got the uh, Godzilla vs. King Kong movie that just came out uh, with my kids. I have uh, six kids and uh, we, we watched it and we, we loved it. I was blown away by that movie. So that's the, the big boy movie and uh, I love that one as well. So you were mentioning, you know, what monster movies have been watching. I wondered, have you guys seen that one? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, so we, yeah. Absolutely loved it as well. So much fun. It is a it big, so good. dumb, rowdy, fun yeah. movie. It, it is the... <laughs> it totally like, is. It's a popcorn movie. And that's just like something that we've been missing. Just a popcorn movie that everybody knows this film is not trying to be like intelligent. It's trying to be right. fun, and people accepted yeah. it for being fun. And I really yeah. hope that that stays true because there have been a lot of films that have come out like the last five years, and yeah. they weren't they weren't taken as being fun. They were like, "Oh, that movie right. made no sense" or whatever. Like uh, like the recent Hellboy film that came out, love that movie. Yeah, it was yeah, that was good fun as well. It was hilarious. It was fun wasn't for kids but i really enjoyed it and then you have all these critics saying like well i don't know it uh there's a lot of crude language in that film you know it's just <laughs> leave it alone but yeah it's a great film like, yeah it's like they want to they want to put it through the filter of their life experience i mean we didn't go into the cinema to go back to college or to go to you know high school we didn't go there to go to the doctor's office we're there to let go of our our problems and just go for a ride, okay? We've got enough problems in our life. Let's go there and suspend our disbelief and just have a good time. You know, when I see critic reviews of my movies or other movies, I, I just think, you know, don't you guys have anything better to do? Like, just can you just enjoy the fun? You know, I watched the big Godzilla vs. King Kong movie. I love our movie. I love ours for a whole different reason than I love their movie. But uh, like when I watched King Kong go to Antarctica in this new movie, and then he goes through this hole, and then he falls through this big tunnel, and suddenly he's in this other, I have no idea what's going on in this movie, and I don't really care. I'm having fun. Yeah, exactly. Matter. Yeah, that's the whole point. The escapism yeah. of film, and giant monster yeah. movies yeah. do a great job with it. So yeah. now that you have, we are going to like totally pick your brains about Ape versus Monster. So we're gonna hold on to that. But now you get to ask the fabulous question, which I've posed to you, to another person in the panel. So go ahead. Oh. Okay, uh, well, Paul, what have Kaiju been up to? 
Well delivered, Daniel. Thank you. Brilliant. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> my best. Not to screw it up. I was trying hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've been watching Godzilla Singular Point on Netflix. Uh, that's the uh, anime that was in Japan is now made its way, I believe, internationally. Mm -hmm. I'm watching it dubbed, so it's the it's the English voices. And I know Joe, you mentioned before that they're a little bit. Um, I'd say they sound. They you said they sound, sound like younger. Quite younger, but it didn't bother me at all. I'm pleased to say that it, it didn't phase me at all. I've completely enjoyed it. I've. It's got better the more I watch it. And you're oh, right, every, it just ends, I'm like, I need to see the next, I need to see the next. I'm, I think I'm about halfway through on episode seven, I believe. Um, oh, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just been really good. Um, so, yeah. It's like the stranger, it. it's like the stranger things of kaiju. <laughs> it, you know, it's just like, just when you think it can get weirder or there's like another like conspiracy or something, it just like flips it and it's like, wait a second, there's more? Have you yeah. have you uh, seen anything for Godzilla Singular Point, Daniel? No, I have not. I have to look it up. That's exciting. Yeah, it's it's really fun. It it's a slow going. I mean, it, I, I would say it's similar to the film Alien um, on a couple on a plot couple of plot levels. Uh, it starts slowly, and then it escalates over the course of thirteen episodes, where the final episode is just basically action. So it's wow. one of those it's one of those really lovely crafted slow build um, stories, and yeah. th those are the best. And what's really wonderful about it is they've taken so much from all the Godzilla lore since 1954, and they've plugged it into these 13 episodes. And it just, it, it has like a nod or an Easter egg in every episode. There, there's more Easter eggs in these 13 episodes than I'd say there were during the whole stint of Marvel's films up to Infinity War. And it was just really fun to see from the perspective of a fan. If you're watching it, um, or if you're looking to watch it, it does have a lot of uh, artificial intelligence and physics uh, science thrown into it. But it's done in such a way that it's pretty tertiary and it's really fun. I, I can't say enough good things about it, but I said in our last episode, I'll say it again, the English dub, if you have heard the original Japanese voice cast, the English dub, the, the characters sound younger, which is a bit jarring if you saw the original version, but if you were going to watch Japanese with subtitles, the subtitles have been cut down so that you can read and get enough of the plot whilst the scenes are progressing. So they've cut a lot of dialogue out of those subtitles. So if you want to get the full plot and all the details of the story, which there is a lot, you'll want to listen to the dub. The dialogue was translated very faithfully from the original uh, Japanese um, scripting. So. I would recommend that, but it is a great series. It is fantastic. And it has lots of nods to very obscure Godzilla characters. I think that's I, my favorite bit. The fact that Godzilla has, hasn't made much for an appearance despite it being Godzilla's single point. It's focusing on all the other creatures. 
I know. So we're seeing Rodan I, I and Angus, and you've got a little toy. I finally got a Titanosaurus <laughs> reference in a Godzilla movie. I was really happy. So my my favorite, one of my favorite monsters is this very obscure one that was only in one film. He's bright orange, and apparently nobody in Japan seems to like him, so he never gets put <laughs> in anything. So that's that's the tragedy of it all. But uh, yeah, so Godzilla singular points. Well done, yeah, so I've been watching that, and oh, other than that. Check that out. Yeah, yeah, check yeah, that yeah. if you get a chance. And the animation's that, really good too, yeah. Oh yeah, splendid. I mean, apart from the AI got a bit annoying for me, <laughs> but the little dog, that, that kind of frustrated me a few times. But other than that, yeah, splendid. Absolutely recommend it. Um, and just saying, other than watching that, I've been playing a game um, called Carrion, which I previously recommended. I went back on just to make a little video for the YouTube channel. And it turns out there's a whole new free bunch of DLC which is a little story based at Christmas time where you're, you're still the same um, creature that's stuck in a lab, but you're now fully powered up and you just need to escape. It takes yeah, 45 minutes to an hour. So if you played the game, go back to it because there's now free content. And um, if you haven't, then please check it out. Joe, what have Kaiju been up to? Um, in terms of actual kaiju stuff, I've watched Ape versus Monster. That's oh, been my, that's, yeah, that's been my great <laughs> contribution um, since we last recorded. I also um, have dipped my toe back into Magic: The Gathering. Um, I have I fell off the wagon, but um, I uh, I've come back for a few things because they've recently released a Dungeons and Dragons set which of course has giant monsters in it. And it was really fun because they used all the original Dungeons and Dragons designs. Some of the artwork is referenced. It's really beautiful. And I just kind of picked a few things out that I wanted, you know, the Taresks, a gold dragon, a white dragon. And it's based on the Forgotten Realms for any D&D fans out there. So it has Drizzt and Icing Death and a couple of really cool nods to the lore of that. So. It was just kind of fun to see that. Um, did yeah, that have the Godzilla cards in it? Was that the one that Magic? Magic did that. Um, they did do an expansion where there, when there were alternate art versions of uh, some of the cards, and the alternate art versions were uh, Godzilla, Kaiju, and characters. So um, there, in Magic, there are lots of promotional cards, and some of them are restricted or banned from regular play because magic can be very competitive. There's indeed some people that make their living off of playing magic. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. But um, in any case, uh, the Godzilla cards, they were just alternate art versions, which was a very tasteful way of, you know, giving out promos or allowing people access to these uh, cards in the game. And uh, as alternate art versions, you just have a different picture, but right. uh, the powers and everything remain the same. So everybody got to have fun with Godzilla in the game. But yeah, I'll periodically, you know, like come back and see what's there. And because originally what got me into that game was the beautiful art that they put on everything. It really is outstanding. And yeah, I dip my toe back into that. And um, it's, it's not always a cheap hobby, but luckily this time it cost me about five quid to get everything that I wanted and that was happy times. But yeah, so without further ado, let's move on to the main topic of tonight's discussion, eight versus monster. Daniel, can you take us through the conception of this film? When did you first get the idea? When did this start to form? Well, this started, uh toward the end of 2019, they 
Asylum sent me the script uh, after let me look at the treatment. So uh, they they developed the treatment at the asylum, uh, and I looked at the outline, and immediately when I heard it was the Godzilla versus King Kong concept, I wanted to dig into it. They were actually surprised because I had never done anything like this before. I never dealt with this genre of movie, uh, but it really just intrigued me, and I wanted to immerse myself in it. So um, it wasn't my concept. It was it was something the asylum had developed internally. Um, of course, they have um, the track record of knowing when another bigger movie is coming along, and they want yeah. to. Uh, do something in, with internally um, that can go alongside that release, but for on a more of a guerrilla filmmaking uh, style. And um, I love that challenge because I historically I've always, ever since I was a kid when I made little movies, I wanted to um, take whatever I had and just create the greatest production value imaginable. Um, so I don't mind having those constrictions. I just want to imagine what we can create and, and make the most of it. So I looked at the script. It looked impossible. It looked like something we could probably never get done in the production schedule that we had and for the budget that we had. And that's what I liked about it. I, I am not a, um, a uh, someone who's, you know, known all about these movies forever. I've always watched King Kong. I love King Kong movies. Um, so it's, it was more of just an, an osmosis for me of, getting to know and throwing myself into studying those. Um, and we started production within like eight to 12 weeks from uh, the uh, reading the script. So I kind of set everything down in my life and just storyboarded everything through and through and began just studying these characters. Because for me, it's about the emotion. It's about getting into the mindset of the characters because I know for me as an actress director on set, most of the time, it's going to be me becoming those characters if I want the actors to believe in it because we don't have um, the, the budget. I have to throw myself into it completely and be able to believe that these characters are real. In order to do that, I have to feel where they're coming from. Okay, we'll just take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to part two of Kaiju Curry House. This is episode 73 and it's myself, Joe, and Daniel Lusco, the director producer of Ape vs. Monster. Daniel, before we left, you were telling us about the production of the movie and how it's quite fast paced. And obviously you've had to film, well, there's still lots of restrictions, I imagine, with COVID. So it'd be really great to hear more about, you know, how long this took and, and how you managed to do it in, in a, you know, such a short period of time. Um, so... Ape versus Monster is on par in terms of its schedule with a lot of asylum movies, low budget movies. It's six days of production. So wow. if you have six, <laughs> six days to shoot, it's the way I like to think about it is like a special forces operation. So if a military unit is going in for a mission, all that time leading up to it is really where you have to get your mind into the game of what you have to do. So efficiency is paramount. And I aim to do an excellent job. 
you know, I, I'm sure when people watch low budget movies, they may have a perception of, well, they're just, you know, trying to do something cheap just to make some money or trying to make a rip off. I, I, some people may perceive a low budget movie like this that way, but that's not the truth of the way I'm approaching it um, and why I, I believe um, even for a, bud, a movie of this budget or a schedule of this schedule, um, it's actually very competitive to, to get into the position to make this type of a movie. So efficiency is everything because you can't waste a second uh, you can't waste a second of what you have leading up to production because I know typically if I'm sent a script like I was sent this one, there's already been a significant amount of development, of scrutiny over the script, over the outline. Um, the Asylum has a great development team. They've already looked at the, um, the sales opportunities. In fact, the movie is funded from the distribution money that's coming in. They've already factored all of that coming in. So when I've got it, it's much like, I think, a, a special forces team being handed a mission. They're saying, here's what your mission is. Here's the amount of time you have to do it. Go and get it done. And if you fail to get it done, we will quickly hand that mission to somebody else because it has to be done. So I don't waste a second. I treat the eight weeks or so every single day and night leading up to production, like we're already in production, I'm making choices. You know, uh, one great filmmaker said, you don't get anywhere until you start making choices. So make them, even if they're the wrong ones, as soon as possible. Um, so in, I will start choosing shots. I have clippings of every other movie that could possibly fit into that genre that span my walls, um, anything that could I could associate with. And I'm storyboarding every single shot out even if it's not the right shot i want to be investing my energy into it uh, because if that's not the right shot hopefully it will lead me to the right one and um, i got to sit in a room with steven spielberg um, for an interview one time and he was saying that he he did a lot of that too he did a lot of storyboarding and he knows that he might get there on the day and see something else that's better than that shot as i often do but still you've made a choice. You have a starting point. You have somewhere to go. And, um, and that way you're not showing up on set going, huh, I wonder where the monster would be. I wonder where the ape would be. I wonder where they're going to come in. You can't be doing that. You don't have time for that. You have to already be in place of this is where I think it's going to go. And then your DP says to you, well, but what if he came from over there? And what if they landed here? That's fine. But you know what I'm saying? Like you've already pre-visualized and imagined yeah. it. So that's how I make the schedule work is by going in with strong choices to the DP and to the actors too. I make, I make significant choices about the staging as well. And sometimes that can frustrate the actors. I'm an actor as well. Uh, but, and I'm okay shifting things to a degree, but I also want to have an orchestration already uh, established um, that we can tweak and adjust as, as we go on. So we always make our days. Uh, we have 10 to 12 hour shooting days. Um, really, it comes down to about, about maybe a 10 or 11, but I minimize setup time to maximum of an hour, um, sometimes 90 minutes if it's, an if it's an extreme lighting setup. And I look at the page count and I say, okay, we're gonna be shooting 10 pages in this lab. Okay, I'm gonna give the DP two hours to light this. 
and I will, as I'm the line producer as well. So I will be able to say, okay, this is what we have. We're going to make our day. Um, it's just a matter of how I have to adjust my coverage to adapt to the limitations that we're experiencing. Um, so there are times where I give the DP more, maybe I even give him three hours. Um, that's a lot of time. Usually it's less. Um, but, but we've already talked about the, the lighting and the, and the blocking in advance. So we're really there to execute, 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 and, and not really deliberate much at all. I, I, I will deliberate between setups while they're getting ready for the next setup. I've already picked the shot for the next setup. Then I might take some time to really think through some of the other things. Um, but in order to be effective and finish a movie, um, in six days, it's, it's the schedule of what you would shoot an episode of a TV series. And then that's an average, uh, schedule five days for, for a 40, maybe 40 to 50 minute episode of a TV series. And that's like block shooting, block shooting, meaning you're shooting several scenes together at once and you're shooting standard coverage, you know, wide, medium, over the shoulder, and maybe an insert or two. Um, but I, I operate that way, uh, but with usually a signature master shot that's usually more unique. And that's something that I've planned in advance um, in order to make it feel more, more organic. Yeah. Well, I had no idea it was that fast paced. That's crazy. Yeah. In those kinds of situations, you definitely have to have an outline in the storyboard. Yeah. That's for sure. So I'm just curious when you do the outlining and storyboarding, you know, I guess you'd call it pre-production. Um, but, yeah. uh, yeah. So when you're doing the outlining and storyboarding, when, when you get that to like a point that you like, do you send your storyboarding to the actors, to everybody ahead of set, or is it just something for you, the master and commander to have on your person and maybe like give to the lighting guy so that he can do his thing? How do you, how do you make sure that everybody's on the same page in that sense? It's different for every project on this project. I didn't. Uh, there was a there was a whole uh, reason for that. We I, we did send references uh, and notes back and forth from other films, but on this one, I I decided not to. Um, it, and it was it was for a few different reasons that I can go into in a second. But on other movies, I would send all of these uh, storyboards and circulate them, where I storyboard out every single shot, and I will discuss them. I, did, I didn't in this case because I had a shorthand established with this DP that I had worked with on, a, on another movie. And, um, and I felt that I wanted to be able to pick the shot there and allow people to have their creative input in, in the moment and see how that worked and how it evolved. Plus we were shooting two cameras, um, which was a different different than I usually do. So I wanted to have a little bit more flexibility and input from the DP on what the shot was going to be, because there's always a challenge when you're shooting two cameras, you're always having to dance with one camera for the other camera. And I didn't want to become too rigid. I think that's what I, what I didn't, I didn't want. And so um, I didn't send the storyboards around because I didn't want people coming too fixated on the storyboards um, and I wanted more agility, um, in, in the way we were going to plan things. So I, I planned out my shots. I knew where we were going each day. And then I go back through the, the night before, um, uh, we're going to shoot that the next day's 
stuff and I will put all my shots into the call sheet for the next day. So I'll actually write them down and then I'll go over those with the DP. Um, and, and that in, with the shifting surfaces we're experiencing with locations and, 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 a, and such a tight schedule and with Eric Roberts in particular, um, you know, he, he, we, we have to adjust things because of the way that he works. Um, I, I just didn't really want to become too rigid. And I think it actually worked out better in this case that I, that I didn't do that. Um, you know, but, and there's a hundred ways to make a movie, maybe a million. So um, I don't know if it was the right answer, but it seemed like the right one to me. Okay. So are you involved in the casting and location or is that all picked by Asylum for you? you um, no, I, I'm very involved with all yeah. of the cast. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the Asylum, um, they uh, make very strong choices. Um, and they, they, I'm grateful that they do include me in that conversation. Um, and there are sometimes parts that they have to uh, pick an actor for, a star for, because of the sales, the distribution, the marketing, the funding of it. And that's where I just, I, I respect those choices. I might, I might, in, if there was an actor I wouldn't be willing to work with, I might say something. I haven't had that happen um, with them, but, but more than, more than almost on all the actors, I'm, I'm picking my top three and, and they are involving me in the conversation of picking the supporting roles as well. Yeah. That's good. So let's talk yeah. about the production. You said you were in New Mexico? correct? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful place. So I'm sure you've got a couple of fun stories you can tell us about the production. I mean, like going at that manic pace, there's no doubt, you know, like some great stories that are happy to come about from that, right? Well, yeah, New Mexico, it's, it's an interesting place to make a movie. It's a, it's a, it's a very experienced film community. Uh, Netflix is here. Amazon Prime Studios is here. Uh, Universal uh, just move, move studios here to New Mexico. Um, we have one of the largest crew bases in the United States um, between New York and LA, Atlanta probably being a, a close competitor, maybe a little bit ahead now. Um, but, but Albuquerque in particular has very sophisticated infrastructure for making movies. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's still very, very challenging for a movie like this um, to compete with uh, these larger shows that Netflix is bringing in. Uh, so if we're making a movie maybe five, 10 years ago, you could have just thrown a rock and picked, gotten a, a pretty good crew, even on this budget level or schedule, uh, and people would have just all come running. Now you have highly sophisticated crew members um, lighting technicians, sound mixers that are being um, fought for by bigger productions. Uh, so, um, you know, thankfully I have a, a good crew of people that are, uh, that are, uh, I've worked with on several different movies. Yeah. Um, but I think on, on this, at this level, um, it's, it's made it challenging. Um, so in some cases we're, we're still, we're still bringing in uh, our DP 
from LA. Um, we're still um, bringing in some of the lead actors from LA. But what's really cool is that, you know, the actors, the talent pool of actors um, is, is really excellent here in Albuquerque because people want to come work in New Mexico. They really, if they haven't worked in New Mexico and they're from Hollywood, they want to, because there's a lot of talk about how great the community is. So people will say, oh gosh, yeah, I normally wouldn't take a project maybe like this, but it's happening in New Mexico. I've wanted to work in New Mexico. I hear the buzz is that's the place to be. So I'll come out and do this. And that's, that's a huge plus. Uh, the, yeah, we have, we have a, you know, a variety of, of, of topography here, ranging from the mountains to rivers, to lakes, to deserts, and then even, even a city that you can double for a, a big city. Um, it's not a big city. It's a, it's a medium-sized city, about a million people, but, but it has all the things you need to sort of, you know, maneuver and make it work yeah. without the big city problems of traffic, you know, and, and, um, and a lot, a lot of red tape. There is more red tape in terms of shooting locations. For instance, when we, for Abe versus Monster, wanted to, uh, and this comes out of my wife, Stacy. She, she's phenomenal at picking locations. She, she has this instinct about where things should feel and where they should go. And I wish she was here right now. I'd love for her to um, come in and, and share on this. But, but she was working with the film commission and um, we wanted a rooftop right in the downtown Albuquerque. And we, yep, we ended up using for, <laughs> right for this big battle that goes down and, um, and the price for getting an entire uh, skyscraper uh, or even a, a parking garage, it, it's very expensive uh, because there's a lot of competition for these locations from Amazon and Netflix and things like that. Uh, but she was able to um, get through to the film commission and really connect with them, connect with the parking garage till they really gave it to us for free. And, um, and that was all her coordination. I give Stacy all the credit for that. Uh, because it ended up working out as a great location. Um, it was fun to shoot in. We used it for several different, we used all the different levels. We used one level for uh, a different part of DC, of course, then they go through and do the VFX and stuff. Uh, we use another area for, um, you know, uh, the Pentagon. We use another for general. And we just picked it. And you wow. look in any different direction <laughs> in Albuquerque, and it looks totally different. So you've got big skyscrapers in one direction. You've got just sky as far as the eye can see in another direction. And and then more like, you know, quaint type of, uh, you know, downtown buildings, apartment buildings in another direction. And, you know, and it, it feels pretty interesting um, to, sh to shoot there. So, uh, that worked out for us. You know, uh, on other occasions, it's been much, much more challenging. I mean, I, I just did a movie that's that's intended for a Hallmark. Um, it's a romantic comedy. After this. I couldn't, have, I couldn't have figured. <laughs> yeah, it's totally. It's a first monster. It's a Hallmark wedding movie. These things, that, you know, you could even just play them together. Every no, I'm just kidding. But um, the the thing is that uh, they it had a bigger budget, you know, because it's it's intended for Hallmark. Um, and we had a much harder time getting um, very ex normal, accessible locations like street corners. It was the, it's like as the budget grows, the, the difficulties grow with it. 
you know, they, the, it doesn't become easier. Well, you can throw a check at a location and, oh, well, the problems just go away. No, they don't. <laughs> Actually, then, you know, it's basically, then they know you'll pay. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> They're, yeah. Like, the price. They're yeah. like, oh, they've got money. Oh, <laughs> we're going to make more problems for them so we get more money. And in fact, on like Eight versus Monster, you know, they, there's like a genuineness to the crew, uh, we really want to see this come together because we know we're the underdog and we want to make this as good as we can be uh, making it for the audience. So we help us out and, um, and people generally do. Uh, they don't always, but they, but they have helped us a lot. Um, we got a huge property out in the desert. Um, one of my, my favorite location was just this, uh, where, the, where the capsule lands at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And it's out in the middle of nowhere, nowhere. And there's a few callback scenes where they're walking around the capsule and it's just desert, desert, desert. And it was so cool to get that property for a couple hundred dollars. And it just came about through our production manager. Uh, they actually had put a bid on that property to build some studios there. And he just thought, you know, I'll just put a call in and sure enough, we got it for nothing. If we had been making um, the Avengers, we probably would have been charged <laughs> Fifty thousand dollars to shoot there, uh, you know the entire the entire budget of the movie, um, you know. So I, I just am so grateful that we're able to get it done and we're able to do uh, these things. And you kind of just feel like, gosh, let's just let's just do this and get it done because we're so grateful that we have the opportunity to even make this movie um, with all the constraints that are against us um, to see people push forward and and give their everything for it. it it made it very very exciting and satisfying we had uh, those military humvees basically given to the movie for next to nothing uh, i could go on and on about the things um but i i just don't take it for granted because um you know regardless of what you think of the movie um we as a team making it um really poured our hearts into it and and really enjoyed that process of like a family um, of do, doing this. And, you know, when I get out there and I'm like, you know, making all the sound effects of the monster creeping up on the guy who's wandering around the capsule patrolling it. And I see the reaction in his eyes and it's genuine. It's burnt, burns. I don't know if you remember the guy with the flashlight, he's wandering around. Yeah, well, I was yeah. making those monster noises <laughs> and becoming the monster. And I just have to become like a kid again and I see it kind of light him up, but not only him, but make the crew laugh, you know, and have a good time. Then I feel like this is worth doing, you know, um, cause there's a lot of easier ways to make, make the, make a little bit of money, but, but it's a privilege that the market would even, whatever the market can bear for a movie like this, that that would allow the asylum uh, as a name, people who are, who do this for a living to give it to us to say, yeah, you know, Let's see what you can do with this. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I feel pretty grateful. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I, I don't know if you're allowed to say actually, but what, what is the budget for Eight versus Monster? Yeah, I, I don't think it's really good for me to say the no. exact number because, because here's why. It's not just to, to say, because that number that I would give or what we had to spend isn't really a reflection of the total budget because there's, there's, you see the other, marketing there's and other costs in the studio in LA 
they're putting in the VFX and the editing and the administrative. Uh, okay, yes, you don't see any of that. That factor it in, but I, I, I can tell you this, it's it's well under a million dollars, well okay. under a million dollars, well, well under, well, well under a million dollars. So I, I can't say what it is, but I would say that if you're looking at a movie of, of, of this like you, you should definitely uh, have over five hundred thousand uh, dollars, which we did not have. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Well, you spoke about visual effects, and I think that's a great segue to the final part of our podcast after we take a quick break. Hi, welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. I'm Daniel Lusco, the director of Eight Versus Monster. I'm excited to be here to wrap up the last part of the show with you here. Oh, fantastic. So what we were going to go over and ask you questions about was the visual effects of Ape versus Monster. All of our fans are kind of drawn to the apes and the monsters. So we're saving the best for last in a sense. So where did the creatures come from? Who designed them? Did you have input? Can you just take us through how that happened? So Glenn Campbell is the head of the VFX department at uh, the asylum. And I would accredit them for the wonderful work that they did in a very, very tight schedule on the monsters and, um, and the ape. As far as I know, the inspiration comes from a lot of what I see in the background, um, which is the, the history of these, these characters of Godzilla versus King Kong um, historically. Now, did I have input into it? I had some input, I did. I, I was involved with um, giving some feedback on the, on, the, on the monster and I am very, very excited uh, with how the, the monster, which is the Godzilla character, uh, turned out in the movie. I mean, I think some of his moments are, are some of the best in the movie. Um, we, we had a lot of conversations going into this about how I could, as a director, um, really become these characters for the actors, be very specific with how we were going to stage the actors. And, you know, you know, the Asylum did the famous Sharknado movies. And one thing that I like to talk about that's really funny when I had conversations with him, he said, you know, Daniel, we had such a hard time creating the sharks flying out of the tornado in Sharknado because the director, he did not specifically enough tell the uh, actors where they were getting bitten or eaten by the sharks. <laughs> He just, whenever the, whenever the shark was flying out of the tornado and Sharknado, he would just yell, shark! And all of a sudden, the, the actor was <laughs> react. And he said, you know, that makes it really hard because in the, as a VFX team, if you're not specific enough, you know, then, um, then we have to guess. So the more precise you can be uh, about the way you're going to move the actors and get into conversation with me. So you asked about sharing the storyboards. I did share the storyboards with the VFX team because I feel that uh, in, in those cases, I want, I want to be in sync with them, especially when it comes to, to um, how the, the choreography and the VFX is going to work. Um, so we did a lot with the stunt coordination too. And, and this is where um, you know, on a very, very tight schedule, like a six day schedule to make a movie usually is not possible to do sophisticated, uh, rope pulls and, and, and stunts Our um, the effects supervisor and I had conversations about doing some practical work, getting very specific about how the monster was going to, uh, uh, 
or the ape was going to mess with the with the actors and the characters and then our stunt coordinator gary who's hong kong trained he's he's a a real real a stunt coordinator trained in hong kong who understands martial arts in ways i don't and um and the way he handled the the actors uh was fun for me he really he really helped me um get specific about how we could what we could do in in harnessing ropes and yanking these actors um in very certain specific ways that the vfx could coordinate with so uh, that made it i think a little more um let's say exact or effective i guess the word would be or efficient even maybe on the vfx side that that, that you you may not experience if if you're doing this quick quick schedule and you're just trying to get the movie done and you you sort of spin out a little bit and you compromise you, you're always making compromises in order to achieve a certain end but if we're the way we were able to plan the shots very accurately weeks in advance and then have conversation with the stunt coordinator about what we could and couldn't do more importantly what we weren't going to do um, really helped because i think the mistake that can be made and is often made on a budget like this or a schedule like this is a director has in his mind well wouldn't it be nice to have um this character do this and then fall out and, and he doesn't discuss it or coordinate it with the team early in advance to find out that you really it's not going to be practical it's not going to be possible to then determine an alternate solution and we had those cases um then you kind of just end up making compromise after compromise, you know? And I think that when it comes to the VFX, getting as clear as we could, and I think there are areas I wish I could even got clearer on um, about what, what are their snags, what really bother them because they have such a short time to work on the VFX um, so that we can just knock those things out and then, and then get really clear with the stunt coordination about what we can and can't do. And of course, having really great stunt guys who are willing to try stuff uh, that's gonna get in sync with the camera work uh, because I see the camera, I see the stunt coordinator, I see the stunts all as one thing that has to operate um, to, make, to make an effect. Um, you know, if those things don't get into sync, it's just, it's, just, it's just not as fun. And I think it's just not as entertaining to watch, but I think we synced up on those things um, a lot of the time, and um, and it, it makes it pretty entertaining to watch. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it was a very entertaining film to watch. Um, I watched it with my partner, and it was definitely a pizza and beer movie. Um, that's what we were hoping it would be. And yeah. it, it's fun. It's really fun. And it's not one of those movies that you know like by any stretch of imagination that you'd have people come in and try and highbrow and everything you watch films like this to have fun yeah. and just have a group of yeah. friends around and yeah. it, it's one of those films that like i'd happily keep on the background at a party you know just like serving out pizza and nachos yeah. and stuff like yeah. that it's exactly. it's a fun it, it that is its place to be and it's fantastic in that sense and when you talk about visual effects there are a couple of uh, good points um that i really enjoyed the uh, night fight in DC was well done. There were a lot of uh, great decisions that were made in the visual effects there. So when you have um, computer generated monsters 
having them in the bright sun. Um, I guess it, it would be cool to say that it showcases anything that was missed, but at the same time, it's a very tricky thing to pull off having it in the sun. So having a night fight in DC was really great. That was one of the things that in Jurassic Park, when computer generated monsters and dinosaurs and all stuff were getting started, they did a dark, rainy um, area mm. for the T-Rex rather than showcase it in full daylight because that's the tough thing to do. So when the predominant amount of the action in the movie takes place at night in DC with some great pyrotechnics, I think that that was really well done for a climax of the film. And I think it added a lot to it. I think that that was a very smart decision to go that route. And that, that was a decision on the part of the, the screenwriter. And I thank him for it because it did sell really well. It was fun to watch. And mm -hmm. I think another thing to give credit to is the actors, because one thing that I had said to them is, look, if we don't buy it and we don't believe in it, if we don't, we can't fully suspend our disbelief, nobody else is going to. And I think the actors did a terrific job of that as well. Um, so I was going to hope my wife could come in and say hi before we nice. wrap it up. She's a production <laughs> designer on 8 versus Months. We were just talking about how wonderful Hello. the were. This is Stacy. And, um, nice. and I, Hello, Stacy. I, I, I to say hi. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, we hear, we hear that you're the uh, actual talent behind this film. Someone's been speaking very highly of you. Yep, that's right. Oh, thank you. We yeah. like working together. It's got our ups and downs for sure, but it's, it's really rewarding at the end of the day to be able to look at something as delightful as this project and yeah. know that we um, took something that was, I don't know. Impossible. Seemed, yeah, it really did. I mean, I shed more tears in the production of this movie, I think, trying to pull all those details together. But now that you see it, it's so rewarding. So it's really cool to be talking to these guys or in the UK. He's yep. from Kansas. Oh, and, uh, yeah, and, and and the other he's uh, Paul, right, is yeah. uh, is from the UK. He's near Cambridge. Terrific. Uh, so it's very, very cool. They were just complimenting the night fight. And I was telling them about the parking garage location that you found. And they, he was saying that that was one of their favorite parts of the movie. Oh, terrific. So, That's great to hear. Wonderful. Awesome. Yeah, it was also, oh, say, uh, the other bit that I really enjoyed was when the capsule lands and uh, just, you know, like the general chaos that goes on around that prop. That he designed fantastic. that entire capsule from scratch. Yeah, so, so oh, we had, well we had virtually no money to create it. Netflix quoted us about $10,000 yeah. to make it, and we built yeah. it ourselves for next to nothing, but she really oversaw that whole thing, and that's one of the coolest little set pieces of the movie. I love that piece. It was really surprising to see it come together because like you said, the quotes were way more than we had to spend on this capsule. And I thought, what are we gonna do? People were saying, oh, you're gonna have to build it out of cardboard. And I thought, cardboard? I don't care how well we paint it. it cardboard was terrible. Cardboard, chrome paint, and, right. and, matte, fi and matte finish. So when you put a Diet matte sealant on it, and uh -huh. you could use tacks for rivets. I've seen it That's, done. I it, mean, you, I have heard you it. Pull it off, this, like, but it's a faff. <laughs> right, right. And I just had yeah. this, I, we were on a team meeting and I just thought, we're just going to build it. And our art director is so talented. His cousin was able to weld the frame and then he attached all the pieces, but yeah. to conceptualize it and then actually pull it together for, I mean, a fraction of a fraction of what our yeah. quote was. It really is, it's yeah. a star. Yeah, it, right? it, it was it, a, it, a star. 
yeah. it's a fantastic prop because when you guys were like having when when it was there doing its thing you could see controls and stuff on the inside the actual details were thrown into there and you had like the little sparks yeah. and the different buttons and panels whatever were lighting up in their own little retro way because this was like an 80s spacecraft i want right. to say 80s yeah okay yeah but, but um you know, it was well done. It was really well done. Oh, and thank you it, so much. Well, it's it's one of those things because you guys could have just as easily taken some um, some sheet metal, put tacks on it over a frame. It would have been a two dimensional thing, and then just right. had someone banging on like a piece of like plastic for the window or something. But you actually right. went the full detail. You did a three hundred and sixty degree prop, and then you had the electronics and the inside kitted out as well. Kudos to that. Like it's thank like I, we take a really big uh we take a stance for a really high appreciation for practical effects on this podcast yeah. and we will sing their praises whenever we can and with Thank a you. film like this obviously like the monsters the practical effects that would have been necessary to bring them to life in any Ooh. capacity yeah. you kind of had to like bypass that a little bit but yeah. um but you know like in all other areas the practical effects were done really well like what you guys could implement was there and i have to give you some you know kudos for that it was well, well done yeah. when you talk about when you talk about the uh the the the, the monsters talk about steven spielberg he created whatever he could of the 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 shark so for us we couldn't create the full monster so what we could do is create the eighth arm and and our daughter actually did that and did all the design elements on the ape arm and uh and and so that we could use it when the ape goes to grab people we could have them react and it was so amazing so i wanted hope oh, wow. to even come and say hello we're on the, the show <laughs> is these guys okay we are hope getting right here she did all the design oh, wow hi hey, ape arm, which is the only thing we could do for the king kong character so, so, so they were just, we were just telling them about how she did work on that. Wanted her to be able to say hi. What did, what did you do? Can you explain what uh, you did? So basically I had these um, arms cause they were the, they had the gloves already, but the fur was sort of ragged and not really in the best of shape. So it I wasn't furry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was more uh, wiry. <laughs> So I took the fur off that was already on there. I got the new fur and I glued it on in different pieces. I sort of ruffled it up a little bit and then I used some like watered down brown paint to sort of add to the, I don't know. Texture, yeah. Yeah. That's really yeah, awesome. It turned wow. out really That's... awesome. It really helped with the actors and the stunt guys to be able to sell the ape when he breaks through the glass or any of that stuff. That was the ape arm that she made and again, these are these are things that we're doing as much as we possibly can to bring that in into the practical effects. So it's not all just, you know, digital stuff, you know, and they can work off of all the real stuff that we did. That she did, did you actually. by yeah. by any chance did you use the old uh, uh, what do you call it tennis ball on a pole trick that they used in Jurassic Park. Have you heard of that one? Oh, the tennis ball on a pole. So we did have a, a long PVC pipe in order to gauge the height of it when we were in production. Uh, so we were we were we were doing that. We had a 15 foot version and a seven foot version, and we would carry it around so that they could scale the height. Yeah. Yeah. And so folks who are listening, what we're talking about is an eye line. So going back to Jurassic Park or an ape versus monster, these monsters, these dinosaurs, whatever you want to like imagine, they aren't there on set with the actors. And the actors, they have amazing imaginations. They're trained professionals. However, if you get one actor looking 
at a lower eye line or lower height than another one, then yeah. you will have like, if when it comes time for visual effects to add the monster back in, you could potentially have one actor looking at the monster's face, but then the other actor might be looking at their crotch. Exactly. So yeah. it's very important to have an eye line. I mean, yeah. an actor, you know, a scientist may suddenly be gobsmacked by the crotch. We don't know about these <laughs> monsters, yeah. but you, you just have to make sure that that's uniform. And again, and that's for the visual effects folks who come by later, it makes their job easier. So yeah, this is, this is aiding an actor's imagination and it's a good way to get yeah, consistency. That's right for special effects. That's right. That's right. Aiding them, getting them into the moment, whatever you can, whether it's a pole or whether it's an ape arm or it's making the sound, the noises, you got to do whatever you can to make it uh, real for them, you know, mm -hmm. because that's, that's ultimately what we're sharing with the actors. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it has come to that point in the podcast where we have to make our recommendations. So we are going to go through and give you our if nothing else's the things that we think you could take away if you really enjoyed eight versus monster or if you're looking for something monster related we're going to give those recommendations now daniel how about you first uh on, a, on the monster movie subject uh so i would pick the i would probably pick the the new uh godzilla king kong movie as a, as another recommendation. I thought it was highly entertaining. Cool. And is that, I think it's still in theaters for folks to see at the time of this uh, podcast episode release. Would you recommend seeing it on a small screen or a big screen? Cause right now there's the option for both. Definitely the big screen. Definitely yeah. a big one. All right. There we go. Paul, how about you? Yeah. I mean, first of all, just to say, um, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing all of those stories there. Um, I had no idea that your whole family was involved in the production. Uh, that's yep, just, that's a family affair. That's just absolutely yep. amazing. That must really, oh, just, yeah, just working all together and seeing the end result must just be fantastic. Uh, yeah. It's cool so, seeing it all over the world. And yeah, we've got to actually take take our, uh, our son somewhere right now. So I actually have to get going too. But man, this has been awesome. I can't wait to, to see what you guys do. And I'm going to start following this podcast too. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, thank there you. you thank you so much yeah. for your time. Um, if people want to follow you, do you have social media at all? I do. And I'm on Instagram at Daniel Lusko, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-U-S-K-O. Uh, also on Facebook, Daniel Lusko. There's a fan page uh, there as well. And um, also, uh, yeah, those are the best two places to find me. Yeah. Super. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you. We won't hold you up any longer. So thank you so much for your time. Um, and we'll make sure, yeah, Thanks we give you a follow. <laughs> thank you, guys. All right. Take care. All right. Bye -bye. See you later. Catch you later. Bye. Right. Um, right. I'll quickly wrap up then with my recommendation, which will be, you've already mentioned it, Sharktopus. Love. <laughs> I love that film. When I when I was in my I think pre twenties, I would watch asylum films all the time. It'd be like Friday or Saturday night. Either have friends over, or I'm just having a few lemonades. Those were the films that you'd stick on, and they're kind of they might be on the background. You might also be playing about on your phone or something. But they they're such fun. And Sharknado was one. Not Sharknado, sorry, which is also good. But Sharktopus was just one that was just different enough to kind of elevate it to be. Not so bad, it's good, but actually just, I really just did enjoy it a lot and would watch it more than once. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, in the United States, uh, Sci-Fi Network has, yes. they show all the Asylum films and it's really easy access. So 
if you're bored at like 10 p.m., there's going to be an asylum film. <laughs> That's on it. There's the always a monster channel. movie on sci-fi, isn't there? It's great. Yeah, yeah. Dino Croc versus Mega Shark, or you know, like whatever. They're, they're think, there. Yeah, I think I've got a lot of them. <laughs> there you go. All right. So I'll finish up with uh, my recommendations. Um, Eight versus Monster. Uh, grab your COVID is thankfully more or less coming to an end in the United Kingdom, as Boris says on July 19th. So um, stay safe, folks. But if all goes according to plan, have your friends around, have some lemonades, watch Eight versus Monster, have a fun time. And then the other thing I'm going to say is Godzilla's singular point. Watch it. Yes, it is I can curse. So good. Watch. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but in a previous podcast, I was asked if there would be a second season, and it certainly looks like it's going to happen. So okay, cool. watch Godzilla Singer Point and have yourself a great time. Folks, this has been episode 73 of Kaiju Curry House. And as always, we say goodbye with Keep It Kaiju. Mm-hmm.